If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to Matthew chapter 12? While you're turning there, I have a, just a couple of announcements for you. Um, Operation Christmas Child is something many of us participated in over the last couple months, and I wanted you to know that 1,200 boxes, well, 1,226 boxes were sent out from New Hope this last week, so that's fantastic. And yeah, that's pretty great. And from around the Lansing area, it was, it was a total of uh, 2,300 boxes, so roughly half of those came from New Hope family alone, so how fantastic is that? Pretty excited. Um, in the area of women's ministry, um, ladies, you want to know that the Christmas event is coming up a week from this Tuesday. It's December 10th, and uh, Lori and some of her team will be available in the atrium after this service. If you want to pick up a ticket for that, you can do that. And next week, Lori will be up here to remind you about it, so if you don't get a chance to do it this week, you can do it next weekend. And then the, the third thing before we go to prayer is uh, that in the tech ministry, if you love pushing buttons and maybe you like working with the cameras or the thought of that, or maybe you just want to turn my mic off at some point. Um, Derek is looking for more workers in that area. So if you have an inclination um, to work on the cameras or work in the tech booth, uh, see Derek after the service and he'd be happy to talk with you about that. Now before we get into Matthew 12 and uh, we get into this really, I consider a very difficult passage, um, it, it's rich, rich with theology, I would love to pray with you first. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each individual who's taken the time to be here this morning, and thank you for those who are watching online right now that we're not able to make it in. Maybe the roads are too slick or there's sickness. God, I, I pray that in each case, for those that are here in the auditorium, for those who are watching online, that you will use this to strengthen us in our walk. You'll give us clarity as we prepare our hearts for taking communion this morning, you would be the one who would be glorified and you would be magnified and we would be reminded again of the great gift we've been given in Jesus. So God, I ask that you would cause your word to come alive. Speak through what you had Matthew write down so many years ago and show us why it was written down. God, we pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Mark records the same thing that Luke records. Luke records the same thing that Matthew records in chapter 12. That the scribes and the Pharisees at this point in time had unified. They weren't a group that necessarily got along. But for this particular occasion, they came together because they had Jesus in their crosshairs. And they were going to focus in on him and they began accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They actually say, you're doing this through the power of Beelzebub. And so it starts out in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. We're going to launch right into it. Look with me on the screen or look in your own copy of the word. It says this in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw demon-possessed, that in itself would be horrible. But on top of demon possession, he's blind. And on top of that, he physically can't speak. Some theologians speculate that he was also deaf. We don't know that because it's not recorded here. That Jesus heals him is not unique. By this point, he's healed hundreds of people. All who came to him that were sick, including those who were demon-possessed, that were blind, that were deaf, 
that were mute, even raising the dead. He'd spoken in the life of many who were crippled. This is not unique, but in one broad stroke, Jesus demonstrates his dominion over both the spiritual world and over the physical world in one individual's life. His entire authority over the created world cannot be brought into question. He's already spoken into the world of weather, atmosphere, animals, food, eyesight, hearing. That's just one more of the things that he's been doing. So his authority cannot be questioned or challenged because the people who walk this planet long before you and I, they've come face to face with the one that they've been waiting for. The one who can command and it's done. So you find comments like in Mark 4, 41, his own disciples would say, who is this then? Look what this comment up on the screen, Mark 4, 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Yet many others remain undecided. Some adamantly opposed to him. But some are just speculating about who he might be, specifically about the source of his power and his authority. It seems unlimited. Where is this coming from? Now, the population as a general rule knew that there would be signs and that there would be wonders and that there would be miracles associated with the arrival of the Messiah. But they wanted someone who would come in royal splendor. They wanted someone who would come with trumpets. They wanted someone who would come with warriors because they're expecting a political leader. But instead of swords and instead of horses, they get a really humble man, one who's compassionate. It's not what they were anticipating. But because Jesus didn't appear as the conqueror, they're not sure they're going to accept him. And most will not accept him as Messiah. Now, for the national leaders' parts, they're no longer skeptical about what the source of his power is. They think they've arrived at a conclusion. They think that they know they're adamantly hostile to Jesus. Mind you, it's approximately one year before they will crucify him when you come to Matthew 12. But they've already made up their mind that they're going to destroy him. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 12, 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So when you dive back into Matthew 12, verse 22, you've got what appears to be thousands, if not hundreds upon hundreds, a huge crowd watching. And they see Jesus heal this man, commanding authority over the spiritual world and over the physical world. And they're watching as eyewitnesses because standing before them is indisputable evidence. It seems that this particular healing was done for the benefit of the Pharisees, perhaps the scribes as well, specifically to force them to make a public decision who is Jesus. Verse 23 says this is the reaction of the crowds. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Focus in on that word amazed for a minute. It's in your notes this morning. If, you, if you've already looked, you saw there's a couple Greek words. That particular word is in there. You see it up on the screen, existeme, 
to put out of your mind as the word that's being used there, to astound you. Do you notice that it's associated with the word insane? In other words, I can't make sense of this mentally. What I'm seeing is so shocking that it's overwhelmed. So you've got a large crowd. We don't know exactly how many, a really large group of people. And Greek theologians, as they study this word, existeme, they're saying this literally means to be knocked out of your senses, which tells me as a reader in 2019, there's something going on there that you and I can't see. There's something beyond what we're able to read. Even in reading the detail about this, even in studying the Greek language, you can't get the full sense of what's going on that Matthew recorded, that Mark recorded, that Luke has recorded because this is so unusual, it's overwhelming. It's as if Jesus puts an exclamation point on the supernatural and says, there, do you get it? Do you see who I am? So in response, you've got the crowd Bear down on verse 23. This cannot be the son of David, can it? This can't be him. Is it? Is it possible? See, the very question reveals that they understand what's going on here. Because son of David is an Old Testament title for the Messiah. They could just as easily put Mashiach in there. This can't be the Mashiach, can it? See, it reveals that this all fits the signs. This fits the signs of the Messiah. But watch the Pharisees' reaction in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. When they heard this, what's the this? You might notice if you have your Bible open that the word this is in italics. And it's because the translators added the word. In the Greek language, it's recorded this way. When they heard, so to help the English reading audience, they added the word this. When they heard this, what is the this? What, what, when they heard about the healing or when they heard about the question from the crowd? Well, either one irritates them. Either one provokes them. But especially... If the crowd now is beginning to speculate that he's the Mashiach, that they marvel, that they speculate that he's the Messiah, drives the Pharisees crazy. It drives them to the point of panic, so they begin accusing. In my life experience, I've come across smart, I've come across stupid smart, and I've come across crazy smart, and I've come across scary smart. I know what category to put the Pharisees in at this point. They go into the category of stupid smart. So they're smart individuals. They wouldn't have made it to where they're at, but they react with stupidity because they're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul. Because of the blindness, they cannot tolerate the thought. This man who denounces us, this one who speaks against us, couldn't be the deliverer. He's a counterfeit. He's a fake Messiah. So in verse 24, they come with this really strong accusation. This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul. 
Who is Beelzebul? Well, Scripture tells us it's the ruler of the demons. It's the ancient Canaanite god, the one whom Israelite chased after back in the Old Testament days. He's what we call today the Lord of the Flies, a follower of Satan. Make no mistake of what's going on here. They're saying that Jesus is the opposite of Messiah, that he is anti-Christ. He serves Satan. See, they've only got one option left. The power of the miracles are so overwhelming that even his enemies recognize the strength of what's been done in front of their very eyes. They're not contesting what's happened with the individual. They're not contesting that he can see or that he can walk or that he can talk. They're not even contesting the fact that the demon is gone. They're saying he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. So he's the opposite of Messiah. See, biblically, there's only two sources of authority. It's either from God or it's from Satan. And because they refuse Jesus, they only have one option left. They're forced to conclude he's of Satan. Now, that's stupid smart. Let me show you scary smart. Because scary smart responds to them. Matthew tells us that Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Go with me to verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The charge is ludicrous, Jesus is saying. This is absurd in the highest degree. It's obvious that any divided kingdom is going to be laid waste by self-destruction. No government, no household, no city-level government, no national-level government can function when it's divided. It can't stand, Jesus is saying. So the principle is really clear. Satan, if he casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his realm stand? Now, there's many negative things that are true about Satan. He is the father of lies. He is the father of chaos. He's the father of hatred. Wherever you find chaos, you're going to find Satan. He's right there at the core of it. He's the source. So just as God is the Lord of order, and structure, Satan is the ruler of disorder and chaos. But mind you this, Satan is the highest created being in the entire universe. Scripture speaks about that. And by the way, I just said created being, right? He's the highest created being, which makes him super smart, but not as smart as Jesus even though he's super smart and he's the highest created being, he will not internally destroy his own program. Therefore, it's preposterous to say Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. Now, scary smart speaks again. And by the way, when I say scary smart, I'm referring to Jesus because he's saying this to them. He's saying this to you this morning. Rationalize this with me, if you will. Verse 27. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
For this reason, they will be your judges. Jesus is just revealing the wickedness of the human heart here, by the way. This is the epitome of prejudice. In the Old Testament, when scribes and Pharisees functioned within the community, they had followers, disciples, if you will, and those disciples were called their sons. They brought them into their household, and they weren't biologically their sons, they were spiritually their sons. You see Paul referring to Timothy that way. He says, my son in the Lord. Well, the sons here being referred to are the sons or the disciples of the Old Testament scribes, the Old Testament Pharisees. Well, the sons of the Pharisees have been casting out demons. Josephus reports, he's a first century theologian, first century historian, and he writes the documentation about the first century. He said that during that period of time when Jesus was walking the planet, the, the sons or the disciples of the Pharisees used all kinds of exotic incantations and cult-like formulas to cast out demons. That's part of why what we studied a couple weeks ago when we said Jesus will say to them in one day, Lord, Lord, we stood before you and we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say, I don't know you, depart from me. These are the people group he's talking about. Luke records in the book of Acts uh, a chief priest by the name of Scevia. And he tells about the sons of Scevia going out and casting out demons and when they heard that the apostles were having great success in casting out demons, they decided to try and do it in the name of Jesus. Well, the demons didn't like that because the demons had a reaction to that. They thought that merely using the, the use of certain words could remove a demon with the demons not impressed. Look with me on the screen at Acts 19, 15. This is the demon speaking back to them. I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is not an uncommon setting. Casting out demons during this period of time was common because it would authenticate a person's authority. So they're saying, you're doing this by the power of Satan. So the Pharisees approved exorcisms that were attempted by their sons. They approved that kind of activity because they're part of the establishment. They would never claim that those activities were part of Satan involvement. Yet because Jesus is casting out demons, they accuse him of belonging to Satan. So their response is the same response of any person who consciously rejects Jesus. They're not rejecting him for a lack of evidence. Evidence is abundant, it's right in front of them. But it's because rather their agenda is contrary to Jesus' agenda. So they're not looking for truth, but they're looking for ways to justify their behavior. So Jesus says in verse 27, for this reason, for this reason, they will be your judges. This is what Jesus is implying. He's implying, you guys go ahead and ask your sons. Ask them by whose authority they're casting out demons. And if they're saying that they cast out demons by the power of Satan, well, they're self-condemning. But if they're saying they're passing, casting out demons by the power of God, well, then how can you say I'm doing anything different? That's scary smart on one level. Keep going with me. Verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you See, Scary Smart says there's only one remaining possibility here. 
that Jesus is God. Because Jesus cast out demons by the power of God. If he does the works of God by the power of God and they're the miracles of God, he has to be the Messiah. Any Old Testament reader knew that this was just part of the signs that God was sending in advance to say, pay attention, this is the one, this is the one you should be looking for. Look with me on the screen at two examples, Isaiah 29, verse 18. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Or this one, Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Well, no wonder they're saying, this can't be the son of David, can it? This must be the Messiah. So Jesus breaks into a parable at this point. And it goes really fast like we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Each of the parables really fly by quickly. But you have to understand the background to set it up. Well, here comes the parable in verse 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So the image is of someone who plans to enter and plunder a strong man's house while he's home. He doesn't wait for the strong man to leave. He waits for the strong man to be in the house. So unless the strong man is rendered incapacitated, there's going to be no chance of success whatsoever here. Jesus' principle is this. I demonstrated absolute power over Satan. Satan is the strong man. I validated I have all authority over the strong man. My power is greater than Satan. So this is Jesus saying, pay attention. Haven't I healed people of disease? Haven't I freed them from demonic possession and control? Haven't I demonstrated my authority over sin and death? So here comes the application of the parable, and it's just pure theology. Jesus is saying, who could have such authority but God himself? Who could enter Satan's realm and successfully bind him and carry off his property? Now, Satan is still powerful, but his power is limited because he was defeated at the cross of Jesus. He was defeated and his doom is sure, but he still has limited capacity and Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's taking away his capacity. I am the one who defeats the strong man. So Jesus logically says it this way in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. See, if he was putting an exclamation point on the miraculous, he's putting a double exclamation point on this statement. It's like, are you with me or not? There's no neutral ground here. He's making it clear. No neutral ground as far as Jesus is concerned. You've got to make a choice. You can't walk the fence and be in the gray area. The person who does not belong to Jesus is the enemy of God, according to Romans 5. So there's only two possible relationships with Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him. 
We could stop right there and we could transition over to communion and it'd be a really short service and we could go, okay, now that passage of scripture makes sense to me. That part wasn't so hard. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He has to go one sentence further and add a therefore. And so as an expository preacher of the word, I have to keep going with the therefore. Watch where this goes. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. And he's talking about the unpardonable sin. And many people come up against this and they wonder, what does that mean? I hear people use the language in 2019. I run into people on a regular basis who want to know about what the unforgivable sin is. And they think they've got a definition of it. So I want you to pay very close attention to this because by God's own statement, he's saying there is something that is an absolute anathema. There is something that is absolutely an abhorrence and it's so great that it stands unforgiven. And few passages of scripture have been more misunderstood than this one. And because of the extreme seriousness of it, we're gonna take a few minutes with it before we do go into communion. If you have your Bibles open, maybe you have a pen with you, you might want to write this down if this has been confusing to you before. Maybe if you don't have your Bible, you do have the notes, you can write in the notes and, and put down some of these thoughts. Do you notice right at the very beginning that Jesus states this clearly? He says, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. That means he's treating this as two different issues. He's calling sin out and he's calling blasphemy out. Now clearly, blasphemy is sin. Blasphemy is a form of sin. But we have to do it within context because of the way that Jesus has stated it here because he's treating each item as a separate entity. See, blasphemy is the most extreme form of sin. When Jesus uses the word sin, he's talking about the full scope of all immoral thoughts and all immoral actions. We know what that is. We understand what sin is. But then he ramps it up by saying blasphemy also. What is that? Blasphemy is the conscious rejection of God. It's a defiant sin of openly speaking against God, including defaming him and mocking him. So here's the second and last Greek word that's in your notes. It's blasphemeo. And this particular word is talking about the same definition of what Jesus is using here. You read it for yourself. Now, in the Old Testament, blasphemy meant instant death. There was no mercy when somebody blasphemed God. They would stone them and kill them. We're told in the last days in the book of Revelation, we're told that blasphemy will be a common occurrence among the people of this planet, that they will speak that way against God. It will be a characteristic of those who oppose God. But mind you what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says even blasphemy can be forgiven. Just as any other sin is forgiven if you confess it and you repent of it. It's on the same caliber as any other sin. So even an unbeliever who blasphemes God can be forgiven. Paul confessed when he got to the book of 1 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy. He said, even though I was ignorant, Timothy, even though I blasphemed God, I've been rectified because of Jesus Christ. 
Even though I was a violent aggressor, even though I was a persecutor, even though I blasphemed the name of Jesus, nevertheless, I was shown mercy, he records in 1 Timothy. Peter is another example of that. Peter blasphemed Jesus the night that Jesus was betrayed. Yet he was forgiven and he was restored and he flourished afterwards. But Jesus goes on to say, there's an exception to this rule. And he says it in verse 31. He says, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. What is that? Go with me to the next verse, verse 32. Verse 32 says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 32 says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. So even somebody who blasphemes the name of Jesus, daring to speak against the Redeemer, that one will be forgiven. And the Son of Man is a really important distinction here. He's using this title of himself. The Son of Man refers to Jesus during the time of his earthly existence. So speaking against the Son of Man was done by Paul. It was done by Peter. We just saw examples of that. They did this in ignorance, but yet they're forgiven and they're restored. But blasphemy against the Spirit is much, much more serious because it not only reflects the attitude of unbelief, It's a determined unbelief. It's a determined unbelief in the face of all the evidence to see everything necessary to believe, to see a blind man see, to see a deaf man hear, to see a demon-possessed man freed, and to say, even though I see it, I refuse it. I know what the evidence is, I don't want it. See, this kind of blasphemy, it reflects a total rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. It's standing opposed to every evidence that's been given. And it demonstrates an absolute refusal to believe. And it results in the loss of opportunity to be ever forgiven. And so Jesus puts an exclamation on the end of that. He says, in this age and in the age to come, there's nothing for them. I will tell you, and I I stand with Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this particular issue. Dr. Fruchtenbaum is of the persuasion that the uniqueness of this sin, it belongs to the uniqueness of the first century. Because those individuals are the ones who stood face to face and they saw all the evidence. To this degree, they physically had eyesight and they could look at what was happening and they spoke openly against Jesus, so they spoke openly against the Holy Spirit. They're eyewitnesses to the power of the Spirit working through Jesus and they're willfully refusing and attributing that power to Satan. And Jesus says, that is the ultimate blasphemy. These would be those who in the face of every possible evidence are denying Jesus as Messiah, and they're saying no. And so God says, I can't do anything more for them. I can't do one thing more for them. They have everything that they need, and therefore they remain eternally unforgiven. And this is where this is significant for you and I in 2019. For a thief, for a murderer, for a liar, 
there is hope and there is complete forgiveness if that one will turn to Jesus. But for someone who denies Jesus, what hope do they have? Dr. Hendrickson in 1973 said it this way. I want you to see his quote. It's in your notes as well. When a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. So I agree with Dr. Fruchtenbaum. That does apply to the Pharisees. It does apply to the scribes. You've got the unbelieving Pharisees and those who blaspheme the Spirit right there, and they've cut themselves off, not because God's mercy wasn't offered. It was offered, but they permanently have rejected and they've ridiculed Jesus as being of Satan. Now, here's how it translates to our day. The book of Hebrews gives a really stern warning on this issue. People who have the information, even people who show up at church, and they know the information and they don't do anything with it. Hebrews records this in chapter two, verse three. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Those who heard, that's the apostles. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles. For the first century, if you dive back into the story, here's the great tragedy for them. They had the highest possible revelation from God and they still refused to believe. And in the face of such overwhelming evidence, therefore, God could do nothing more for them. This is why Jesus says this about you, church, in 2019. Why he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You didn't get to see one-tenth of what the Pharisees got to see or the scribes and yet you're gonna lift the cup and the bread this morning because you believe. Jesus is saying you're blessed because of that. So we come now to communion and we recognize by nature, God is forgiving. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. It's by his nature. He's a forgiving God. The Old Testament abounds with evidence of his forgiveness. Look with me at this, Psalm 86.5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you, even to a thief hanging on the cross in the last moments of his life. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Even to a person on their deathbed, God abounds in forgiveness, but if they won't confess Jesus... What is God going to do with them? The New Testament also pictures God as a God of forgiveness. Look at this. It's the core of gospel. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no matter how severe the sin, God can and God will forgive if someone asks. That means the worst conceivable sin, in my mind, is to kill Jesus. Yet even while he's on the cross, the forgiving nature of God is to say, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. That's the forgiving nature of God. So the degree of your sin doesn't forfeit forgiveness. I don't know how great your sin is. I don't know to what degree you've sinned. 
You don't know to what degree I've sinned. Scripture merely says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But the degree of your sin doesn't forfeit forgiveness, even to the degree of killing the Son of God. God says it's forgivable if you would only ask. But the counter to that is this. There is no forgiveness of even the smallest sin unless it's dealt with through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate communion. So we get to be a witness to each other this morning. We get to witness to what he's done in our life, the reality of what we understand. You're gonna pick up the bread and pick up the cup and you'll be a witness. And just like every other time when we do communion here at New Hope, you'll have time to examine yourself before you come to the table. I know there's new people arriving at New Hope all the time, so I don't want to assume that you've been here for communion before. If you haven't, there's tables in the front and tables in the back. And the way that we do communion is we ask you to come to one of the tables and to pick up the elements when you're ready. The first thing I'm going to do is read to you from the book of Corinthians. The instructions specifically that were given to us, Paul wrote them down for the sake of the church. God asked Paul to write these things down. So he says, I received this from the Lord. But as you hear these things being stated, begin examining yourself because Paul stops mid-sentence and he says, you got to examine yourself before you do this because the seriousness of what you're about to do. Listen to this in verse 23, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming not only that he died, but that he's coming again. So here's the cause for warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to encourage you to take this time right now just to talk to your father. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, spend time with him, and then when you're ready, come on up to one of the tables, and someone will be there to remind you of what you're doing. If you're physically able to stand, would you stand with me? You ready to be a witness? He's worthy of it, right? And the night that he was betrayed... He held up bread and he said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, I thank you for the witness that's in this auditorium of these many individuals who have not seen and yet believe because you are the one that we have waited for. So we praise you and we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that has redeemed us and forgiven us and destined us for eternity. And we praise you in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.